the success for me would be firstly seeing a number of uh, black farmers participating in a sector without displacing the white farmers, but then growing that pie. Hello and welcome to the Brentas Foundation podcast, where we throw light on some of the African continent's biggest and most pressing issues and leverage best practice, not just on what to do, but how to do it. I'm your host, Marie Noel Ngokolo, and it's a pleasure to share in this moment with you. If you're new here, welcome. It's nice to have you here. If you're a regular, hey, how's it going? So this is the podcast where I share a lot of the super interesting conversations I have with really cool people. I'm a firm believer in sharing ideas that shape and challenge the world as we know it. My hope is that these conversations where you get to be a fly on the wall, start further and deeper conversations wherever you are and lead to the exploring of actions and ideas that actually work and make a difference. So without further ado, let's get straight into it. Again, I'm Marie Noel and you're listening to the Brentos Foundation podcast. Okay, on this beautiful rainy day, we will be reverting to a basic staple of conversations around growth and development, which is agriculture. Agriculture has always been tipped as one of the key generators of rural jobs and economic activity. But has it done that? Have we been able to get it to do that? In today's episode, I'll be digging into what it takes for agriculture to live up to these expectations. This episode is based on South Africa's agriculture, policy reforms to stimulate growth and employment. A chapter in the book Better Choices, co-authored by Wandile Shlobo and Gracelyn Baskaran. In this chapter, the authors argue that for agriculture to live up to its expectations, it requires a stable, predictable, and conducive policy environment. This is a prerequisite for investments that the sector needs in order for expansion, job creation, and increased productivity. Joining me for this chat today about why agriculture has yet to live up to expectations in South Africa is Wandi Lesishlogo. I like this chat for a number of reasons. One, it's very informative. Wandile is a pretty smart guy with in-depth experience on agricultural policy and practice. Second, it's an issue that's quite templatic. It applies to so many other places. So while this is about South Africa, it gives some context for many other places on the continent. And the third, because I live for moments where people who do work are also humanized, and this is one of them. You learn more about one delay in this episode as well. Now, before you jump ahead in all that excitement, let me introduce you to one delay. Wandile is the Chief Economist of the Agricultural Business Chamber of South Africa, AgBiz, and the author of Finding Common Ground, Land, Equity and Agriculture. Wandile is a Senior Lecturer Extraordinary at the Department of Agricultural Economics at Stellenbosch University. He's also a Visiting Research Fellow at the WITS School of Governance, University of WITS. He holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Agricultural Economics and a Master of Science degree in Agricultural Economics from Stellenbosch University. 
Wandele was appointed as member of President Cyril Ramaphosa's Presidential Economic Advisory Council in 2019. After serving on the Presidential Expert Advisory Panel on Land Reform and Agriculture between 2018 and 2019, he's also a member of the Council of Statistics of South Africa Stats SA and a commissioner at the International Trade Administration Commission of South Africa. And that's not all there is about Wandile, but I'll save him further blushing. Wandile, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It's a real pleasure to have you here. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. All right. So before we go straight into the podcast, I just wanted to take a minute or two just to familiarize ourselves with who you are. Are you ready? It's a short game, kind of like rapid fire. But yes, (laughs) let's do it. (laughs) Okay. What was the first job on your resume? Uh, tutor. Yeah. Oh, how many languages do you speak? Um, five, five. That's better in a country with 11. So nearly half. (laughs) That's impressive. Good riddance. Um, all right. Do you have any hobbies or skills that people don't really know about you? Yeah, I don't. I don't think people know that actually because uh, people see you working on informal stuff. Um, they think that's the type of work you do. But I actually sit and enjoy a lot of uh, hip hop music and uh, go visit uh, poetry sessions and the stuff. Ooh. So that's actually where I I sit when I'm not working. Yeah. I don't think oh, people know that. Cool. Yeah, definitely. I didn't know that. All right, also awesome. Um, what best describes your work day at the moment? My work day at the moment, mm-hmm. um, interesting, because I, I see that because it's interesting to me because I get to work on a range of issues. Um, you know, my current job, which is the Agriculture Business Chamber of South Africa, where we are a private sector organization working on policy issues with regards to government, but also mm-hmm. having a foot in government um, in some parts of the day where you're working on administering like trade policy at ITEC and the others. So the day always gets interesting. Uh, you're dealing with different challenges every day. Yeah, I know. That's pretty cool. What's the one skill you underestimated but has served you really well in your work? It's what we're going to talk about today, writing. Oh, Writing okay. and storytelling are very and important. Storytelling. Yeah, no, that's pretty cool. What's the last aha moment you had, Mandele? What is that? Last aha moment. moment I've had. Oh man, I don't, I don't know. You know, <laughs> that's the sweat, but enough. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> that is fair enough. Okay, the last question I it's have. Not for saying you, things haven't been. Uh, every, I haven't been discovering a lot of. Uh, you know, <laughs> days are busy. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. That's fair enough. What comes to mind, Wandile, when you hear Africa in twenty fifty? What comes to mind when I th- when I hear Africa 2050 um, yeah. is progress uh, mm. from where we are today. Progress, and I say this because we have this large population of young people from South mm-hmm. Africa to Nigeria to East Africa. I- you see a lot of countries, a majority of young people who are frustrated about some of yeah. the economic conditions that we experience, but also who are getting into technology, doing all of the interesting things. And I think the yeah. globalization 
is also one of the things and uh, connected uh, particularly through online platform that exposes people to all kinds of skills and kinds of things that are that are happening elsewhere in the world and i think yeah. that's what is going to contribute to our progress Oh, wow, that's amazing. All right, Wandele, thank you so, so much for engaging with that. Uh, now, on to the business of the day. So let's start yes. from here. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and the journey to Noun, which is expertise in agriculture and this contribution to the book Better Choices? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm an agricultural economist um, by qualification, um, researching on a number of themes within the specs. When I started working, I used to spend a lot of time on the agricultural commodity markets work. Um, mm. did that, and then over time, then progressed into more policy oriented questions. Either it's on land reform, it's on rural development, yeah. um, it's on trade policy and stuff. Uh, and, and I guess then that's what brings us also within the book, because over time, one gets to be involved in government work. Um, a member of the president, advise, economic advisory council, advising the minister, and, and and all of these. And what they struggle with most of the time is to say, how do we grow agriculture in a more inclusive way? Inclusive in a case of South Africa, where there's still racial dynamics that are there or racial disparities when you think about the economic sectors. But at the same time, saying, how does this sector get to create more jobs? Because we have uh, three main problems in South Africa: unemployment. Um, uh, inequality and poverty, then agriculture, if it is to be prioritized, it has to respond to those needs. So much of my research has really been looking into the sector from that perspective to say inclusive growth, jobs, um, economic activity. So it's really been on, on, on to that. And I would say that that's, that's how I would summarize um, much of what I do. You know, that's perfect. So from your research, right, and the work that you do, you know, we all know, as you just repeated, that, you know, agriculture is usually, you know, sort of tipped as that key generator of jobs um, and economic activity um, in South Africa, as in uh, many other places, actually. But in South Africa, have you found that it's lived up to this sort of expectation? Um, can you help outline what that's looked like over the past, you know, two, three decades? I think that's that's actually what comes then uh, to the crux of the book, um, yeah. because what the book does is to look back, especially within the chapter of agriculture, to say 1994 up until to today, how has South Africa's agricultural sector actually performed? And what we yeah. find in the in, in that chapter is that um, it has more than doubled in value terms. There's been enormous progress. Number of things that are behind that: improvements in productivity, adoption of technology, either biological or mechanical. And also opening up of trade to export markets. So there's this demand that we've benefited to an extent that as South Africa today, we are exporting about half of what we produce in value terms. In 2021, that was $12.4 billion. Then the question comes into play to say, but has that growth been more inclusive in racial dynamics? Have the black farmers been part of that expansion that we have mm -hmm. seen? And what we find that is that, no, it, they haven't. Uh, what we see on research is that the numbers point to an average of roughly 10% of the black farmers contributing to the commercial output of agriculture. Then the question is to say, why is that the case? Yeah. What are some of the policy instruments um, that could actually be um, implemented to make sure that we correct the sector, while at the same time we're not using that sluggish inclusion in a populist way of saying, oh, black farmers are not eating on this cake, therefore nobody should have cake. 
but rather mm. to say, how do you grow the pie? Because there is a risk for that, um, which is why we have to lay out some of the important uh, fundamentals about how to do that. And that was a thinking that we were having as we began working up on the book. And back to your question of saying, has agriculture served well? It hasn't in that perspective, but on the latter point of employment, agriculture has done well. We now, mm. if you think about agriculture and agro-processing in South Africa, have roughly yeah. 1.3 million people employed. Agriculture north of 850,000 people um, on agro-processing, over 400,000 people that are there. So there's been some good uh, activity, but, but, but there's still room and there's still possibility to even expand towards uh, yeah. and, and add this progress. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that. One day, can you walk us through some of these, you know, reforms, the policy level that you think um, will sort of help the sector in terms of its ability um, to stimulate growth and employment? There's a number of challenges that um, currently face South Africa's agricultural sector. I mean, the first basic one on saying we can stimulate employment is to go back to the story of, of land reform in South Africa. Um, mm. and, and this is an important not only by exchanging the hands of the ownership of land parcels, but also to say how much land do we have that is currently underutilized, which right. maybe the state could have bought for the purpose of land reform, but was not as successful on transferring it to people so that they utilize it efficiently. What we see in the in the data there is that there is over 2 million hectares or so of land that is sitting in the books of government, which can be transferred to some black beneficiaries. But now what we are emphasizing a lot in the book is to say, the story of title deeds is important or long-term tradable uh, leases so that the investment could follow through onto that. But that's a common understanding. And then we had to ask our questions, why has the government not been uh, willing to transfer right. that land? And what you hear when you talk to many people is that there was a bit of a transfer of land all the way up maybe to 2006. But in 2006, new policies like what is called the proactive land acquisition strategy, which came in as a corrective measure of certain behavior that the, the, the beneficiaries of land reform were having, maybe selling back some of the land to the very same farmers that it was bought to. Then you have expenditure on land, but in ownership patterns, you don't see that progressing. Then it might be what has led the government to take the stunt uh, that it has taken, uh, amongst other factors, of course, that the lawmakers considered at the time. Then in the book we say you can perhaps maybe make sure that you will have a first right of refusal if such an instance were, were to occur going forward, but you really have to, to, to transfer that. The second point that we come into, we also started to say, but land reform hasn't been doom and gloom. There's been some successes in projects that have happened where there's partnerships and all kinds of things. Then the question then is researchers is to say, how do you take those platforms, those, those success projects, replicate them in large scale? We see bit of those, for example, in the beef industry, certain group, some uh, awesome colleagues in the free state. We see some in the wool industry, some in the sugar industry. The question then was to say, how do you uh, replicate that utilizing the land that's available? But there are other broader questions around the lack of delivery by municipalities, which constrain not only transformation, agriculture in general. There's a lot that can be done to expand our export markets further than where we are sitting. Network industries are very important and we are seeing a lot of glitches, roads, ports, and all of those things to be improved for market access. So it's a combination of those and the other factors. And most importantly, I have to stress this one, 
is agricultural finance. And we haven't been talking a lot about agricultural finance. And the land bank has an important role to play in here, and it can partner with the Department of Agriculture and the others to come up with innovative and useful instruments to fund new entrance participants um, in, 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 the, in the sector. So there's a number of those suggestions that we, we explore in the book. Yeah, no, and I think that's really helpful, especially your point on agriculture finance. And I think in the book, you talked about uh, finding ways to like crowd in, um, like create a consolidated fund. Can you speak a bit about what that could look like, like how practical um, that is? Yeah, what we were envisaging there was um, saying that the blended finance of some sort of instrument, because, of course, you don't want a situation where you create dependency, where there's always free money that is going around. Um, yeah. you, the belief is that anyone who's coming into agriculture comes with the understanding that this is an economic sector they are starting on in a business. What you want to do is not necessarily to give them free money, but rather to give them instruments that they can borrow from at mm. an affordable rate, um, patient capital, so that uh, as they progress and they are able to see their businesses gaining momentum, then they'll be able to repay some of those loans in a very mm. flexible interest rates. That's the story at which you, 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 we are talking about here. The South African government spends a lot of money in different ports um, within the Department of Agriculture, various programs and the other departments, social developments and the others that fund agriculture related stuff. The question then is to say, is there a way at which we can tie all of that up together into one port? Then be more targeted to say, we want to fund people that are in a high value labor intensive sector. Because remember, we're funding agriculture and making new farmers, not for the sake of only just making farmers. You have to think back to the three points I had made at the start, which is unemployment, uh, inequality, and the issues of poverty. Then if you're funding new farmers, they should ideally contribute towards creating employment, towards yeah. reducing poverty, and all of those things. So you find a lot of them that are in those bases. And the other way of thinking about this is that you can have grant from the government and then see if the land bank and the other commercial banks in South Africa, they can come to what they can call a blended finance instruments, where the grants from government de-risk some of the capital that will be coming on from private sector. It's those type of funds that we're thinking about. Um, uh, there could be a commercial one, there could be one that is linked to the land bank, there could be a state allocating its resources in a more targeted and clearer way on who yeah. they will fund and what regions and what crops of, of some sort. So that's the thinking. Awesome. Wendy, I have another question for you, and I think maybe your experience now, especially in the advisory capacity, would help. What have you found to be you know, part of the reasons why a lot of these things aren't done. And I say this because, you know, I know this is not like the first thing you've written. You've been writing about a lot of these things for years and so many others have as well. So what are some of the things that are holding um, us back from doing some of these recommendations that are practical, make sense and actually could help change um, the status quo around agriculture and agricultural policy? I think there's a there's a number of things, and and I and I guess with the with the with the little bit of proximity that one gets to have to policymakers to senior government officials, you you come to appreciate the complexity of the systems mm. they are they are dealing with. Because I I do think uh, to be fair that when you're sitting on the outside, 
you see it as an instance where you say, you know, why does X, Y, Z not just do the work and make mm-hmm. a phone call and do things? Uh, what's holding them back? Is this they not don't understand? And I think we lose appreciation of the fact that most people that are in government are actually specialists in the areas that they are in. Mm-hmm. Um, they are crop scientists, animal scientists, and economists, and what have you that work into into these departments. But I think the the what what tends to hold some of these things back, at least in the agriculture, to speak on a limited extent, is that some of the things get to be negotiated. Um, and written in Pretoria. But Pretoria doesn't necessarily implement. Implementation happens in a much local level. By the time the message leaves Pretoria and it gets to provincial levels, from a provincial level to a district, and then it goes to the local level, it's no longer the same messaging. So what we need to figure out is to say, how do you ensure that there's a clear alignment um, on, mm. on there and the flow of information and the urgency of that information is there? And the other thing that we can be honest about is that while I was making a point to say in Pretoria, maybe people are well qualified and suited for their job, there is a case to be said about local level that we have fallen short on the skills that are needed to take mm-hmm. um, the economies uh, forward in various municipalities. Then if there is not um, a know-how there or capability, because it's not a capacity issue, it's a capability issue per se in some, mm-hmm. because there's a number of people that are there, but they don't have the capability. Then they should be open to bringing in private sector, which is why we always talk about these partnerships and these partnerships. It's not that we're creating a nanny situation where it's a lovey-dovey thing, everyone is partnership, but it's to say, you have a skill, I don't have it, we all want to live in a prospering country, then how do we work together to get this thing to work? Yeah. Who, who could make some of these things happen? Is it on the private sector or academic institutions? Is it, you know, those are the municipality or provincial level? Like, how can we make some of these things more real? I mean, I, I'm not going to make um, a, even a bolder suggestion on this because, I, I'm, I, you know, this is not the stuff of the type of work that I do. There are people who know how this facilitation stuff can work. But I mm-hmm. believe that each engagement differs area by area, sector by sector, because yeah. you are dealing with people here, different orientations, different goals, different policy and political agendas. And, and the stuff. But I think what the conversation we've started now in South Africa about social compacting and all of those things, no matter how boring it could be to other people, it is a step forward than the situation yeah. where each person or each sector was sitting in their corner talking about whatever they, they are, their desires are. So mm-hmm. the, the core thing is that Pretoria should emphasize partnerships and that's yeah. the message that should go to provincials. And then the, the 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 technical part of it on how it will be done, it will differ situation by, by, by situation. But I think that the core thing that should lie ahead is that no one is trying to displace other people from their jobs. We are all yeah. working to make this um, a country to to, to 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 progress. And I think that 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 could be that could be that could be useful. But but it has to come from political principles. Government has to take a lead into this because if you're a private sector, you cannot take a lead into it. It will seem like you are encroaching in other people's space. Government should open up their hands and call on the people to assist. And private sector should also come because, I mean, they are not holy cows. They are private sector people that are corrupt. Um, They are government people that are corrupt. So those that go in there should go all with a clear-headed view that, okay, this is the goal um, so that um, uh, we, we, we... 
create situation that adds more hesitation and resentment. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mandili. As we wrap up, I just wanted to know, what was the most surprising or interesting thing you learned whilst putting together this chapter? I mean, what, what I learned as we were putting together the chapter is that what we are writing and we are talking about hasn't changed much over the past two decades. Because mm-hmm. when you put up this thing, you turn then to go back and to say, OK, what were we talking about in 2012? What were yeah. people talking about in two year 2000? What were people talking about in 1994? In agricultural economies, the discussion hasn't evolved much. We're still grappling mm-hmm. with the very same issues. Then the question is to say, why uh, are we singing in the same? Should, should we be starting to find out new ways at which the message can go down? Or is the message wrong? What, what can we learn to making sure that you know there is a bit of progress? But at the same time, I was careful not to be too harsh on that. To the very point I had made that this is a sector that has grown. It's not like yeah. people have just been talking um, out of thin air. Nothing actually happens. So that was for me the the thing to say. Look, the the discussion we are having hasn't evolved much um, from since that that time. And my hope is that as we go forward, we can be able to see implementation and a bit of uh, uh, growth, so that I don't get to study the same question ten years ago. Life mm. will be boring with that. <laughs> Indeed, it will be right. And the final question I have for you, Andile, is: it, What would success look like right how would we know that we are on the right path because i think sometimes we talk a lot about you know what needs to be done and the stage that we want to achieve but sometimes i don't know if we actually know what it would look like when we are walking that path to you if you had to imagine um south africa with you know sort of a better um policy around agriculture and agricultural uh growth um in terms of its ability to you know support those three things reducing inequality reducing poverty um what would that look like to you for you to say oh we're actually on the right path are there particular indicators that um you can look to or one could look to yeah i mean i think the 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 success for me would be firstly seeing a number of uh, black farmers participating in a sector without displacing the white farmers but then growing that pie um and the number moving from 10 percent to becoming maybe a much more bigger number than that And secondly, seeing the Eastern Cape province, Limpopo and KZN, which is KwaZulu-Natal province, becoming Mm -hmm. one of the robust contributors to growth in vibrant agricultural industries, either at large scale, medium scale or small scale farming. That for me will be um, a success and seeing a sustainable employment um, in agriculture, exports going out. that's, That's what I'm looking at at a more philosophical level. Um, onto this, uh, at which I can say, okay, our sector um, and the policies we've, we've been able to to argue for are, are showing a bit of success. Yeah, Wandile, this is absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for making the time to do this with me. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much. That brings us to the end of today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did putting it together. I love, love learning new things. Hey, if you enjoyed this chat, you definitely enjoy others that came before it. Check out previous episodes on whichever platform you're tuned into now or visit our website www.thebrentersfoundation.org for other episodes. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if I could make one last ask of you, please do share this with others. Again, you're listening to Marie Noel on the Brentus Foundation podcast and it's been a pleasure sharing this time with you. Until next week, stay well.